You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. We saw each other for a year. It was very intense, very strong, very real. And then uh, for 14 years, we were uh, friends. I knew him very well, as he did me. Singer, actress, and Margaret. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. In the early 1960s, you would have been hard-pressed to find a singer or actress more popular, more in demand, more everywhere than Anne Margaret. The young star, born in Sweden as Anne Margaret Olsen, soon captivated everyone's attention. With her combination of Scandinavian beauty, a kind of youthful sex appeal, and an, kind of an undercurrent of danger, it's easy to see why she became so popular so quickly. Many people said she reminded them of a female Elvis Presley. And by 1964, she was starring alongside the real Elvis in the movie Viva Las Vegas and famously having an affair with the king. Her star never faded into the 60s, the 70s, the 80s and beyond, and Margaret remains a major star. Finally, in 1994, she was prompted to write her autobiography. And that's when I had the chance to meet her. Now, this interview with Anne Margaret taught me something, something very important. I had watched her on the Larry King TV show the night before I was to interview her, and I learned something from that. Larry's interviewing style was to interrupt a lot, uh, and I realized that as soon as she would start answering one of his very personal and candid and, and maybe even slightly embarrassing questions, as soon as she would start to answer, he would interrupt her with the next question, and this was she was totally flummoxed by this. She was, it was, you could tell it was a very difficult interview. So going into my interview with her, I made a promise to myself that I was going to just ask a question and then shut up and let her answer. And as you're about to hear, I think it worked. So here now from 1994, my candid and sometimes emotional interview with Anne Margaret. I never ever intended to write a book. I'm Swedish reserved. I was born in Sweden, you know, closed mouth. Don't talk about yourself. You know, I'd rather be interviewing you, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but we heard that there was an unauthorized uh, book that was being done by someone who absolutely knew nothing about me, didn't know me, uh, never will know me. And I had a big meeting with my my husband, my mother, one of my doctor's lawyers, uh, and we all decided that we'd like to get the truth out, my truth, first. It is interesting, after reading a book like this, I can imagine the kinds of ways that somebody could take a nugget of truth and fling it way out over and here to the side and, and run with it, and it would sound maybe plausible to two or three people who also didn't know you that this person might have talked to, and but it would it would be completely different than the straight story as you told us. Well, look at Rashomon. They That's... tell the same story. I mean, it's 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 whoever tells it. When you sit down though, and somebody is working with you, Todd, as good as he is, bless his heart, he obviously was able to draw you out. Where's how... oh, it was like <laughs> pulling teeth for him. I, I I kept saying, I hope you're a strong person, Todd, because. <laughs> And at times, we would do five, six, he would have a tape recorder, five, six hour, uh, sessions at, uh, at our house. 
And at times I would just run into the bedroom and just uh, burst out uh, crying. I said, I, I, Todd, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And he said, okay, um, we'll stop for today. And he would give me a list of 10 or 15 questions uh, so that I could look over them for the next time that we would get together. And that's how we did it. Did you have in mind, before you started, a line in your mind, I will say this much, but no more, or I will address this topic, but not that? I've always had a line in my life. That's a very, very, very good question. I've never been asked that before. Are you Scandinavian? Full-blood Norwegian. Yeah, okay. That's right, you told me. You must be so happy about the Olympics, huh? Yes. <laughs> my goodness. Ever, ever, no, nobody over there speaks with a foreign accent. <laughs> but, but there is something, there, there is, because there is a two-ness, which you address in the book. There is the on-stage Anne-Margaret. There is the Anne-Margaret who's sitting in the studio with me right now. There's the... As one reviewer of your book put it, the wimp, and then there's the the one who goes down the road a hundred miles an hour on her motorcycle. I mean, there, there's, there, <laughs> it's it's almost like there's two of you there. <laughs> the wimp. <laughs> <laughs> they said it in the nicest possible oh, that's way. That's so funny. That's cute. <sighs> Actually, it's been since I can remember, since I was four years old. I see my mother shy. My father, God bless his soul, was terribly shy. And so I had a double whammy there. Um, but then when I started singing, my mom was an amateur performer. You, you read the book, mm-hmm. so you know that uh, Daddy went to America when he was 19 and then came back and he met my mom and got married. I came along. But then it was during the war and uh, he crossed the ocean on some kind of cargo boat. Some, I mean, I don't know how long it took, but he has he had wanderlust just like I do. But he did not want us to uh, travel the ocean because it was just too dangerous. So five years we were in Volsha being that little village where in that house uh, it was me, my grandmother, my mom and my uncle Kale and uncle Kale still lives there and daddy was in Chicago five whole years and mom never did want to leave but uh, daddy was boss and she wanted to keep the family together and so uh, speaking no English we went to uh, America. But your original question was the two. She would teach me Swedish folk songs. And I really liked it and I enjoyed it. And I became this this other person. I forgot about uh, being shy. And uh, she would do little movements to make me move around a little bit around the, the kitchen. And I would mimic her. That's how it started. I don't think it was all mimicry, though. You have something natural in you, don't you? It just... It depends on the kind of music. Some music just really turns me off. I'll just sit there. I'll I'll just say, oh, please, when is this going to end? (laughs) And then there's other kind of music, like, well, like that one song that I uh, 
I mentioned in the book, the Jimmy Reed, uh, Baby, What You Want Me To Do. Ah, drives me crazy. <laughs> it almost sounds like, uh, like there's something that you don't entirely have a whole lot of control over, that it's just kind of, it's, a, it's almost an instinctual thing with you. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of eerie. Uh, I mean, I love it when it comes. Well, you're in the right business for it. For it. <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> It'd be terribly embarrassing to, you know, be in another kind of business. I, mean, I wouldn't be much used to you for a dental assistant or something. To... No, or a lawyer, and all of a sudden break into song, and you're doing <laughs> criminal lawyer. But did that necessarily mean that from an early age you knew that show business was your life? Even in that little village, when friends would come over and relatives... Mom and I would harmonize, and Uncle Kale played the accordion. He still plays the accordion very well. Um, I would see the reaction in their eyes, and I would see, you know, if we sang a thing called Violet Timur, Violets for Mother. It's a very, very old, uh, beautiful song about a little girl uh, whose mother is blind, and she is showing... Her mother, the beautiful spring flowers. It's a very old song, and uh, I remember all the old people just starting to cry. Just even at four years old, seeing to be able to touch people, to be able to make them smile, to make them feel good. Um, it made me feel really good. I like that feeling. Were you ready, though, for the explosion of stardom that, that hit you at, at such an early age that suddenly you were hot? I mean, you were everywhere. I didn't have a clue. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have a clue. Beep, <laughs> zoom. Uh, but, you know, it's interesting. This really happens with everyone. You know the flavor of the month? You've heard that. The way that my mother and father raised me was in a way that I didn't believe all those superlatives, you know. It's like, what is it somebody said? Nobody can be that good and nobody can be that bad. What is that? I don't know what that thing is. But um, I knew that it was going to be hard. And that's why I dropped my, my, my last name uh, before going to Hollywood with the subtle tones. Because I never wanted... I love my parents so much and I cherish them and I never want to displease them. And I never wanted them to be hurt or embarrassed by anything that was written about me or said about me. So we had a big family meeting at the kitchen table in Wilmette, Illinois. And I said that I wanted to drop the name so they wouldn't be hurt and they understood. And you know, it really did help. But you wouldn't have never done anything to embarrass them anyway. People write lies. You know that. True. I was looking in here for some for some, for that wild streak though that that all all 
you know, all, everyone in Hollywood is into something, you know, it's just, and the worst thing I could find about you was riding a motorcycle above the speed limit. <laughs> was that as rebellious as you got? No. <laughs> no. No, I'm a skier. I love speed. I mean, speed like... <laughs> Velocity. You know. <laughs> These days you really have to watch yourself, what you say. <laughs> Words mean things, yes, different That's... things. After this short break, the topic that brought Anne-Margaret to tears. Now back to my 1994 interview with Anne-Margaret. I want to ask you this. I've seen some of the the interviews that you've been doing so far, and people seem to be so fascinated and so fixated with Elvis, and they want to they keep steering it back to this and steering it back to that. And yes, clearly from the reading of your book, he formed he, he was uh, you know a, a major figure in your life. And but are you do people dwell too much on that? Do you think to the exclusion of what else is in the book? Millions of people, zillions of people love him and will always love him. And uh, his music will live on in his movies and stuff. In this book, I talk about the 14 years uh, we saw each other for a year was very intense, very strong, very real. And then uh, for 14 years we were uh, friends. And he was truly gifted and I wanted to celebrate his life. There have been so many negative things written about him and I knew him very well, as he did me. And uh, I wanted everyone to know the gentleman that I knew. I do feel like I know him better now than I've ever read in any of the other books. Lo, these many books that have been written about him all these years. It's just just a few lines of yours here and there. Maybe a line or two in the later chapters. I don't know, there's just something you tell us that, that, that means a lot more. And I think you intended it that way. But I also have to ask, why does one stay with... I mean, in Hollywood, where people are jumping in and out of each other's beds all the time and getting in divorced court and most people are on their fifth and sixth and seventh spouses by now and supporting ex Why have you been with the same man for 30 years? We like each other. What's your secret? What's your secret, Susie Q? <laughs> uh, let's see. In the book, <clears throat> well, you're Scandinavian, so I'm sure you've had the same kind of upbringing I have. When I was growing I'm an only child. Are you? No, I have two brothers. Okay. Um, my parents never would allow me to, um, in those days, back in the 1800s. <laughs> Before the Earth's crust cooled, as I tell my kids. <laughs> there was a thing where um, the boys used to give the girls their ID bracelet. They used to exchange ID bracelets if they wanted to go steady. And um, I was asked a few times, and uh, my father and mother said, oh, definitely not. No, no, no. I was never able, uh, 
I was never allowed to go study with anyone. I didn't have my first date unchaperoned until I was 16 years old. I know it's hard to believe. So, keeping that in mind, when I went out to Hollywood, So, you know, during uh, high school, after I was 16, and then the one year at North I went out with many, many different uh, kinds of uh, gentlemen. And when I came to Hollywood, the same thing. Because I wanted to know the kinds of qualities that I admired and respected in a man and that I wanted and needed for a long and happy marriage. One marriage. I knew on the third date with Roger. And he keeps saying, how'd you know, how'd you know? Did he know? I don't think anybody knew except me. And of course, the Lord. That's quite a story. I wanted to, I I also have to confess to you, I'm more than just a little starstruck because I can't believe I've been sitting in the studio now for 30 minutes with Anne Margrock. And it's just, <clears throat> I, this is, I mean, this is the best, this is the best part of this job. I mean, last year, Alan Brady, uh, you know, uh, uh, Carl Reiner was sitting there and I was just, you know, I mean, I grew up with these shows in the sixties, you know, and, and Alan Brady was sitting there and then, uh, Captain Kirk was sitting there last fall, you know, my Star Trek. And now Anne Margrock is in my studio. This is just, uh, you know, we should have brought pebbles. Yeah, that's right. And sing a lullaby. That, that struck me. You know, That's so commonplace these days to have your image everywhere if you're hot. I mean, you're suddenly on sneakers, you're on cereal boxes, you're everywhere. But back in the early 60s, to be a cartoon character, that was, that was kind of out of the ordinary, wasn't it? Here's how it happened. I don't know if I say it in the book. Um, George Sidney directed Bye Bye Pretty. And uh, the next movie was Viva Las Vegas, and he directed that one also. And that was in 63 that we did that. He was then the president of Hanna-Barbera, Flintstones. And he said, would you like to do uh, a character in this? And he showed me this little character, and I just giggled. I thought, well, isn't that the funniest little thing? It was all hair. It was all orange hair. came <laughs> practically to my shoes. And I just ran around like this. I mean, Fred and Barney didn't have a clue who you were. You were just a babysitter. <laughs> <laughs> it was so amusing to a kid. I was just so cute. At airports or places, there are a lot of people. These teeny-weeny, because they keep rerunning it, little kids will come, and Margrock. <laughs> and they, they have no other uh, idea, you know, what I've done or anything. Um... And there is to be a movie, The Flintstones. And I was sent the script. It, there was a part in there for Anne Margrock. I was supposed to, uh, there was a song and everything in a nightclub, but uh, I couldn't do it because I was doing another film. Wow. I have so many more things I want to ask you, but I'm out of time already. I want to keep you on schedule. Is there anything else, though, that you wanted to add? The two trips that I made to Vietnam oh, uh, yes. were... Uh, in 1966, I received 
I think I have it in there. I don't know, three or five thousand signatures. On the petitions. On uh, these reams and reams of paper. <laughs> and uh, within six months, I was over there with Johnny Rivers and his bassist and drummer. And, oh, and in New York just now, three days ago, I met a gentleman at one of the radio stations who saw me at Anke in 66. And I cannot tell you all the guys and uh, and the women who were there, the, the nurses, and just great gentlemen and ladies that, that I met there. I mean, I had... When it, I have so much to say about it. First of all, I had nightmares six months after I came back. I... I think about them all the time. And, of course, I went to the memorial. And there are several. And I got my piece of paper. I'll never forget those gentlemen and ladies. And when I do concerts, or I'm somewhere, anywhere on the street, they'll say, Hey, I saw you at Fubai, or I saw you at Chulai, I saw you at uh, Benoit, and I just, I get so thrilled to see them, that they made it home. Isn't there one story you haven't heard of somebody who died just a few hours after they'd seen your show? Yes, sir. But you've got to have the pleasure at that point of knowing at least you were able to give them some pleasure a few hours before they died. I mean, for a few, for a couple of hours during your show, they forgot that they were in Vietnam. Oh, boy. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you so very much. And margaret will be 82 next month. Her most recent screen appearance was in 2017. And sadly, that was also the year her husband, Roger Smith, died after they'd been married for 50 years. And you can find an easy Amazon link to Anne Margaret's book at our website, heardeverything.com. And that's also where you'll find my 1991 interview with one of her contemporaries in show business, early 60s, Ronnie Spector. Even when I see the videos and the tapes from Hullabaloo, Shindig, it's like, who's that girl? But I love it because it was so much fun. In the 60s, when we, with all the twists and the, the jerk, all these dances going around, it was so much fun. And my interview with another 1960s movie star with a huge following, the star of Love Story, Ali McGraw. The first line of moving pictures is, love means never having to say you're sorry. With that lie, millions of boxes of Kleenexes were launched. I mean, the only time I didn't realize what an absurd line that was, was on, like, take 11, freezing cold on that porch where I had to say it. And, of course, we post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find Now I've Heard Everything on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, just about the time that Anne Margaret was rocketing to fame, there was another person who was literally rocketing to fame as a member of the original Mercury 7 Project, my 1987 interview with pioneering astronaut 
Wally Shira. And Mercury, I was just trying to get into space and get back again. In Gemini, I was doing tasks, trying to prepare to uh, commit again to a lunar landing. Then as we did the lunar mission, I did the first Apollo mission. I said, okay, now we've got a vehicle that can stay in space, go all the way to the moon and back without any major malfunctions. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.